1: Is that Lisa? I do hear you. Hi, let me up a little bit. When I reached Lisa Lehrer at the New York Times, this is one of the first things she said to me.
2: "Um, Lisa, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, thanks for having me. I love um, talking about Tulsi Gabbard. (laughs) (laughs) My my sweet spot.
1: (laughs) I think a lot of people feel the way Lisa does. They want to talk about Tulsi Gabbard, but. At the same time, they are not quite sure what Tulsi Gabbard is trying to tell them.
2: I just find her really fascinating, and I find her evolution really fascinating from this sort of darling star of the Democratic Party to kind of whatever she is now. It's just a great story, you know. But her polling numbers, what are they right now? Well, I mean, it depends on the poll, but they're certainly in the single digits. I was in Iowa this past weekend where they had this big party dinner. The Liberty and Justice Dinner used to be known as the JJ. It's the last really all-candidate event, like cattle call kind of thing, before the Iowa caucuses. Um, So it's a big marker in that state's calendar, and that state obviously plays a very crucial role in the nominating contest. And Tulsi uh, Gabbard did not qualify to have a speaking slot. So that gives you a sense of, you know, really how much momentum and organizational energy this campaign has. Not a lot. Yes, (laughs) not a lot.
1: But Tulsi Gabbard, has a different kind of momentum. Sure, she's running for the Democratic presidential nomination, but her candidacy is being propelled forward by forces outside of the Democratic Party itself.
2: I want to bring in now former White House chief strategist Steve Bannon, the host of the news. And I think the, the most confusing piece is her embrace of the right wing media.
0: Well, look, she's a, I think she's a, a rising star, you know, Major Gabbard. You
2: there had her a- in when you were campaign manager. Steve Bannon, who of course really was the mastermind of Donald Trump's rise, Franklin Graham, who's a, you know a titan of evangelical circles, uh, Ron Paul, a radio hosts like Mike Cernovich, they like her. Uh, David Duke has endorsed her, though Congressman Gabbard has disavowed that endorsement.
1: I mean, you recently published a piece that you titled "What Exactly Is Tulsi Gabbard Up To?" Have you figured that out? <laughs> uh, no. Today on the show, what is Tulsi Gabbard running for and running against? And how far can a candidate like her push the Democratic establishment? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by SAP. Tulsi Gabbard got a lot of attention when she first came to Washington back in 2013. She was the first Hindu in Congress, one of the youngest people elected. She was also proudly Hawaiian. She talked about bringing the aloha spirit to politics. Still does. In the beginning, this was all pretty alluring to Democrats. So as soon as Gabbard got to Capitol Hill, she was tapped for a plum position, vice chair of the Democratic National Committee.
2: She was sort of this outspoken economic progressive. She was a veteran. She was a young woman. She was a surfer. You know, people like Nancy Pelosi said she'd be a big star. I think Rachel Maddow, if I remember correctly, had had praised her.
1: You get to be the vice chair of the National Democratic Party because your party thinks you're going places.
2: So she was seen as this progressive veteran who was very telegenic and had this great background in Hawaii and was someone that the party could sort of put forward as their, their new face. But then she did something
1: that pissed a lot of people off when Hillary Clinton was running for president.
2: Well, she backed Bernie Sanders' bid over Hillary Clinton. And so that really isolated her from the mainstream sort of party center. I mean, you have to remember it during that campaign. Sanders was really seen as someone on the fringe, maybe a socialist, sometimes a Democrat, who was challenging Hillary Clinton, who the party had really kind of anointed as the next nominee. Um, So when Congresswoman Gabbard left her position at the DNC, which she had been given because she was this rising star to go and support Bernie Sanders, that was something that Really annoyed a lot of people in the Democratic Party establishment.
1: Right. And it wasn't just that it was she was calling for more debates because that would have been advantageous to Bernie Sanders.
2: Right. And the concern that, you know, the Democratic establishments had people had and um, allies of Hillary Clinton was that Hillary Clinton would get beat up in these debates, that those attacks by Bernie Sanders, while he was unlikely to capture the nomination was sort of the mainstream thinking in Washington, she would be damaged heading into a general because of how he would frame her.
1: I mean, I think the endorsement of Bernie Sanders, it kind of got people interested in the idea of hold it who is this woman? Like, how did she get here? And a lot of people started talking about how she was raised in this pretty unconventional way where she didn't go to traditional school. She was raised Hindu, but it was in this kind of break off movement um, from the Hare Krishnas. Can you, can you describe a little bit how she actually became interested in politics in the first place?
2: Well, actually, she's from a political family. Her mother was on the Hawaii State Board of Education. Her father was a Honolulu City Council member, and he was a political activist. And that's come back to haunt her a little bit. Her father, Mike Gabbard, was one of the state's leading opponents of LGBTQ rights. And he founded an organization that was opposed to marriage equality and really tolerance for homosexuality. So that's something that those are positions that she has had to renounce during the first days of her presidential campaign. So she's from, she's from a political background. You know, it's just a political background in local politics in Hawaii.
1: But Gabbard's politics could be unpredictable. Even before she endorsed Bernie Sanders, her colleagues noticed she didn't want to carry water for the party, especially when it came to foreign policy. She walked this line. As a member of the Army Reserve, she'd vote to support the military. But on other
2: things, she was kind of a wild card. So she also picked a few fights with the Obama administration that Democrats really didn't like, right? If you remember the whole fight of where Republicans demanded that President Obama use the term uh, radical Islam, she was really the only Democrat to join that Republican call and you know went on Fox News and made a big deal uh, of the fact that the president would not use the term radical Islam. She dubbed herself a hawk on terrorism. Those were foreign policy positions that were really out of the mainstream of Democratic thinking and in some cases anathema to what Democrats were trying to do. So she was already kind of getting attention from
1: folks saying, huh, this isn't typically what we would expect from our junior congresswoman.
2: Right. I think her focus on sort of the terrorism threat led to her sort of quasi-support for Bashir al-Assad. I mean, I think she would not consider herself a supporter of Assad, but she's been very reluctant to criticize him. What would you say he is to the United States? If you cannot say that he's an adversary or an enemy, what is Assad to the U.S.? What is the word?
1: you can describe it however you want to describe it my I want to my, know how you describe my it. point is that whether it is Syria or any of these other countries we need to look at how their interests are counter to or aligned with ours
2: and she's argued that really the best way to defeat isis in syria was for the us to re- align itself with assad and that of course you know means that really you're aligning yourself with russia and putin and so as things developed over the past few years and certainly with russia's intervention in the election last time around, that's led to a lot of questions about her. The thing I have
1: trouble with when I look at Tulsi Gabbard's sort of record and and what she says about the issues is finding an overarching philosophy, because I think it's interesting that she talks about the military in a different way than a lot of other politicians do, having served in the military. But I can't quite tell what the bigger message is about where we should involve ourselves and how we should behave abroad,
2: right? I think you're you're hitting at the central uh, the central facet that people find confusing about Tulsi Gabbard is that there's no there seems to be no intellectual um, consistency in terms of her message. No foreign intervention, then she's reluctant to say sort of negative things about Assad or Modi uh, or even Putin. She's you know it's it's just it's confusing. Hmm. I want to
1: talk a little bit about the various people who have come out supporting Tulsi Gabbard, because it is this really diverse, like almost strange constituency where, you know, she was obviously closely aligned with Bernie Sanders. She came out early to support him. But then also you have people like Steve Bannon coming forward. You have people like David Duke. You have a lot of fans on 4chan. Have you been in those 4chan discussions? And can you
2: characterize them a little bit? Well, they call her mommy. That's her nickname. in those 4chan message boards. Look, I think they, uh, people on 4chan, like these kind of candidates who stir it up, who take on the establishment, who are fighting sort of mainstream figures. And she definitely has positioned herself in that space. She is someone who has positioned herself herself as an opponent of the establishment, even as she runs for one of the major parties nomination.
1: I mean, I think Tulsi herself would say, you know, she wants to talk to all Americans. That's why you see her on Fox News more than, say, Elizabeth Warren. And I wonder what you think about that as a political reporter.
2: Well, I, I think that's fine. And it's certainly a fair argument to talk to all Americans. But I think first you have to win a Democratic primary, Right. And so you don't win a Democratic primary by going on Fox News. That's not where your voters are. She has a very strong fan base. It's not necessarily very large based on her polling numbers, both in national and state polls, but it's very active and it's very active online. And it feels very strongly about Tulsi Gabbard. And I see from people who've reached out to me, you know, in emails or whatever, sometimes these people are independents or Republicans. They're not sort of Always, Some of them are traditional Democrats, but not always. You know, she has attracted people with a wide variety of views and they feel very strongly about her. And they also really feel that um, the mainstream media is out to get her. I mean, you asked Gabbard's campaign
1: about her support from sort of fringier groups and they declined to respond. Did
2: that strike you as odd or... You know what? I did find that a little bit odd because they spend there's a lot of time complaining about how she's not being covered by the media and how the media, even the New York Times and CNN, as she called us out, uh, the debate we sponsored is out to get her. But I gave them multiple opportunities to comment. I asked for an interview to sit down with her um, and those were all turned down. So I, I did find that a bit confusing, Um the complaints that the media is not covering her and then the, when the is presented not to not to take it.
1: Can you talk about how Tulsi Gabbard's campaign is running a little bit differently than other people in the race?
2: Yes. So it's very small and it's. A lot of members of her family are very involved. Her husband is the videographer. Her sister is really uh, running the operation. Many of the people employed by the campaign have ties to her religion. A local Hawaiian paper did an investigation where they went to the house. They tracked down the house of one of her top paid consultants. And he was living in Alaska in sort of this remote place and wouldn't come to the door. And it was uh, sort of unusual for a political consultant so it's a very small operation really run by people who are very, very loyal to Congresswoman Gabbard and a lot and a fair number of those people. It's also a bit of a family operation.
1: I can see how that's comfortable, but I could also see how that means your worldview stays rather compact.
2: Yeah, I I mean, I have heard from uh, people inside the campaign that there are questions about whether she's hearing criticism and whether... There are folks there to tell her perhaps this isn't working or that isn't working. And that, you know, is a perpetual problem in presidential campaigns that nobody really wants to tell their boss, the boss, they're doing something wrong. But that is the difference between candidates who take off and candidates who end up making mistakes is is the ability to correct for and understand those missteps.
1: Now, Gabbard's candidacy is at this turning point, with polls consistently putting her campaign in the single digits she seems to be lashing out even harder at her own party. Last month, she threatened not to show up at the Democratic presidential debate, saying the system had been rigged. A few weeks later, she called out Hillary Clinton, saying she was the queen of warmongers. Although, you could argue that Hillary Clinton started that fight. Can you tell the story of exactly what she said? Because I think there was actually some confusion about that at first.
2: Okay. Okay. So, Hillary Clinton has been out in public a little bit lately because she's promoting a new book that she wrote with her daughter Chelsea, and as part of that push, she was interviewed by David Pluff, who, of course was Barack Obama's campaign manager in two thousand and eight uh, on a um on a podcast and At one point, Pluff and Hillary Clinton start discussing possible strategies that Trump and the Republicans would use uh in the election. And she says, you know, that first Republicans will demonize the Democratic candidate, and then she said Republicans, and this is where things got got controversial. Republicans would encourage a third party candidate so that voters disenchanted with the president, you know, and the Democrats could have another option.
1: I'm not making any predictions, but I think they've got their eye on somebody who's currently in the Democratic (laughs) primary, and are grooming her to be the third party candidate. She's the favorite of the Russians. They have a bunch of sites and bots and other
0: ways of supporting her mm-hmm. so far. And
2: her staff later said that she was, you know, referring to Tulsi Gabbard in her comments. So basically, what Hillary Clinton was arguing, although she was not using Tulsi Gabbard's name, was that the Russian that the Russian propaganda machine, the kind of, you know, Internet trolls and operators that were meddling around in the 2016 election would come out and back Tulsi Gabbard. And really, she was saying they already are out and backing Tulsi Gabbard. And that could cost uh, Democrats the vote uh, in the same kind of way that impacted her race. Is there any truth to that, that the bots are out there, you know, pushing Tulsi Gabbard's message? So honestly, it's really hard to know because the platforms have gotten much better at sort of taking out the most obvious bots, bot operations. So it's hard to know whether that's happening. Uh, We do know there has been some analysis of Russian state television, you know, outlets like RT or Sputnik, and they do tend to cover Tulsi Gabbard more than they would. They cover other candidates at her level, you know, the two to four percent level in the race. But, you know, does that mean they're backing her? I don't know. It's hard to know. But I, I think what's interesting in this is that Tulsi Gabbard jumped on Hillary Clinton's claims. And in fact, she was the one who said that Hillary Clinton... Claimed that she was being, quote, her words groomed by the Russian government to undermine America. So Tulsi Gabbard's campaign saw this as a really useful talking point for them, not only because it got her attention, you know, widespread media attention, but it also helped her make the argument that. It wasn't that her message didn't have appeal with voters. It was that she was somehow being hurt by the the Democratic Party forces.
0: Let me tell you what this is about. This is about
1: Hillary Clinton sending a very strong message saying that because I am and have long been calling for an end to our country's foreign policy of waging
0: one regime change war after the next, uh, the likes of which we've seen in Iraq, in Libya, and ongoing in Syria, And because I'm calling for an end to this new Cold War
1: and nuclear arms race, that I am a Russian asset and that I am a traitor to the nation that I love. That's so extremely online that any attention is good attention. Just keep stoking it.
2: Yeah. And look, some people who have had interactions with the campaign say that is part of their philosophy, that all attention is good attention. And that's how they view it. So whether that attention comes from Tulsi Gabbard or comes from Hillary Clinton attacking her, that's that's great. And look, there are plenty of people in the Democratic Party who are really uh, do not like Hillary Clinton. So this gave her an opportunity to really take some punches at this very well-known, very famous, still controversial figure in the party. At the end of October, Gabbard announced
1: she would not be running for re-election to Congress in 2020, choosing instead to focus all of her attention on this long-shot presidential bid. This decision, it just intensified all the questions about what Gabbard's up to and whether she might stay in the presidential race, even if she loses her party's nomination.
2: Whenever she's been asked, she said, absolutely not. She is not running as a third party candidate, but that has not done anything to tamper the speculation. And I think, you know, all this is also wrapped up into this intense sort of PTSD Democrats have from the last election, Democratic Party strategists, establishment types. Politicians and voters are so traumatized, really, by their loss Um, in 16 that they see everything, I think, through that lens. And there's this deep rooted fear that someone will emerge as Jill Stein like figure and in a tight race will cost them the election. And I think when Democrats look on that stage, they see Tulsi Gabbard as the candidate most likely to fill that role, even though she has said again and again that she has no plans to do that.
1: What do you think she's thinking about next steps could be in the event she's not the presidential nominee?
2: You know, she hasn't said anything, but generally politicians don't say when I don't become president, I'm going to do X, Y and Z. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Everybody is going to be president until they're not. Um, But of course, in reality, that's not what people are doing. They're behind the scenes sort of plotting out their next moves. And I have no idea whether Tulsi Gabbard is doing that. And she hasn't said at all what she might do should she uh, fail to win the nomination, which is what it looks like. Now, at least, unless something in the contest changes radically. But there's certainly a lot of speculation, and I've heard all kinds of theories. One, of course, is that should uh, President Trump win re-election, that she would go into the Trump administration. And that sounds, perhaps out of its face, really confusing because uh, she's, of course, running for the Democratic Party nomination. uh, But what people who sort of speculate on that, they point out that she met, she was one of really very, very few, if any, Democrats who met with President Trump when he was president-elect. That and her sort of support from folks in Trump's circle has led some Democrats to speculate uh, whether she would go into the administration should he win a second term. Hmm. I'm curious what you
1: think Tulsi's candidacy says about politics right now, about, about what she's saying about how the political world works.
2: Well, I think it's a couple things. Um, I think we're in a period where parties are on the decline, where the two mainstream parties don't have the same level of control uh, that they had anymore. And there's sort of an ironic twist to this, because I think Tulsi Gabbard is sort of creating this narrative of this rigged system of this smoke-filled room, when in reality, her very existence, her very presence on that stage shows that there is no more smoke-filled room. That that's gone, that really um, anyone who can get attention online and build up a little money from a viral moment can run for president and possibly have a, a place on that stage. And we see that in both parties. Of course, you know, you look at Donald Trump and you see that same phenomenon. He certainly was not the pick of the Republican Party establishment. That much is pretty clear. So I think her presence on the stage, even as she spends all this time attacking the establishment, really shows how very weak parties and party establishments are in America right now. Lisa Lehrer, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me.
1: Lisa Lehrer is a political reporter at The New York Times. She writes the newsletter on politics. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, Daniel Hewitt, and Mara Silvers. One more thing to tell you about before I get off the air here. If you live in New York, a bunch of the smart women at Slate are going to be doing a live show and a debate watch party. Whew. I'm exhausted just thinking about it. But I would love to see you there. We're going to be talking a bit. Then we're going to watch the Democratic debate. We're even considering bingo cards. There's definitely going to be a couple drinks involved. If this sounds fun to you, it is happening November 20th in Brooklyn. More details are at Slate.com slash live. Slate.com slash live. Thanks for listening. I'm Mary Harris. I will talk to you tomorrow.